Father God, you are worthy of our praise and our adoration. For you are a God who is self-sufficient, self-existent, and you need nothing. And yet you saw fit to create, you saw fit to redeem. And one day you will see fit to glorify and restore. So we come to you today to remember what little we grasp of your good character and to declare before you that we are needy beggars who long for more understanding of who you are and long for more of your spirit-empowered grace in our lives so that we might live as your people. We thank you that you have designed us to be constantly connected to you and dependent upon your provision daily. This is not a design flaw in us or an indicator of some narcissistic need on your part, for again, you are self-sufficient and holy and need nothing. But it is a gracious gift to us that we need to be connected to you. For what better activity and state is there than to worship you and be consumed by the glory of your goodness? And so it is in this spirit that we come to you today first to thank you. We thank you for drawing us together this morning. What a privilege it is to dwell in the house of the Lord amongst your people. Secondly, we thank you for the many people from this church who supported our sister Cheryl and her family at the funeral of her husband Ted yesterday. We pray that the words that were spoken would be used by your Holy Spirit to draw those present closer to you. And we pray that you would continue to comfort and care for Cheryl and Tim and Lisa and their family as they move forward in their mourning. Please help us as a church to surround and support them well. We also come to you today stating clearly that we need your help. We first want to pray for Cody Holland as he is undergoing emergency surgery for an appendicitis that came on suddenly last night. Please cover him and care for him even as he undergoes surgery this morning. Please be with the doctors and nurses and medical staff as they minister to him. Please heal him and please give comfort to Debbie, Tom, and Spencer as they await the outcome. Please minister to this family that has undergone so much recently. We thank you that you are their shepherd who carries them through all trial and suffering. We also want to ask that you would bless the many teachers and students in this church who are about to embark on another academic year of learning. Please direct their steps and protect them from ideology that might try to distance them from your wisdom and embed them in your truth. Please use this next year to grow them in all your holiness and sanctification. We pray that the ministry of the word this morning would build your people and give you glory. We pray for the preaching at Salem Reformed Baptist and at the branch in Corvallis. May your words be rightly and truly proclaimed so that hearts might be changed. And we pray for the same in our midst this morning, here at Mission Fellowship. Please use my errant human voice to somehow proclaim your beautiful truth so that we might be sanctified. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You can have a seat and open your Bibles to Psalm 33. We'll be covering Psalm 33 and Psalm 36 this morning. Brothers and sisters, one of my greatest desires is for each of you and all of you to know that I love you. It is my regular prayer for each of you that you would know the love of the Lord Jesus through the ministry and the care of this church, through our elders and leadership, and through my own ministry of the word to you. Now, depending upon your understanding of the word love, even this statement could mean any number of things to different people in this room. The nature of words is that when we hear them or speak them or write them, we all have a background meaning that we are trying to convey. Words, especially in English, have meanings. And so we pull from our own personal dictionary to find out what is being conveyed when we hear or read a word. Unfortunately, much of our understanding of the topic of love has been set by popular culture. Even within the Christian church, you will get multiple understandings of love that destructively come not from the Bible, but from the surrounding culture and especially entertainment. Think about movies that have told us what love is. Perhaps you are one that feels a psychological emptiness in your heart. And you were told that Jesus would do what Jerry Maguire's girlfriend did for Tom Cruise. 
you complete me. Maybe that's what Jesus is going to do for you. For those who are into a cheap grace that requires no repentance or conviction, they are unknowingly following the movie quote by Barbara Streisand from the 70s that most of you in this room probably don't know. Love means never having to say you're sorry. For those who are Stoics, simply trying harder at being holy, love is something that, in the words of Jack Nicholson, makes me want to be a better man. That sounds more like Batman, sorry. Just thinking of him as Joker, I guess. How many songs in contemporary Christianity take their definition of God's love towards his people, not from the Bible, but as if primarily informed by Mr. Darcy from Pride and Prejudice, as he says to Elizabeth, I would have to tell you that you have bewitched me body and soul, and I love, I love, I love you. I know, ladies, I just ruined it for you, sorry. <laughs> Far too many choruses in Christian music sound just like that, do they not? Or maybe you are a person who knows love is good, but you can't seem to find the joy in it that everyone else does, and so your sarcastic feeling around love is best symbolized by the priest in The Princess Bride who speaks of love, true love. Well, even if you're not a movie fan, you are most likely still impacted by the culture that surrounds you in your view of love. For you are constantly bombarded with ideas of love, such as the bumper sticker and lawn sign foolishness of our day that says, love is love. In other words, there is no one definition. You just will know love when you feel it. In this way, love, amazingly, has become a divisive word and has been given over to subjective, temporary whims of the shallow human psyche and libido. So what happens when the church preaches the truth of God's love to the world? It gets confusing, doesn't it? Because every human hears it in a different way. Because in many cases, those who are living in complete rebellion to God's loving rule are actually the ones using prominent biblical truth to supposedly back up their worldview and actions. If God is love, for example, as it says very specifically in the New Testament, why wouldn't we want to celebrate any form of love as the bumper stickers call us to? God is love, after all. Why wouldn't we celebrate it especially when it is monogamous and committed? Well, friends, in the sarcastic words of a coffee mug I was gifted, I can do all things through a verse taken out of context. At least a portion of the church will respond in anger when they see how contorted the definition of love has become. But our words of conviction should actually be armed back at ourselves because it is the contemporary church who has far too easily surrendered the biblical truth of love to the surrounding culture. And it has done so in a vain attempt to fill our church pews with unconverted people. The thinking is, falsely and foolishly, that we can convince the world to raise themselves from spiritual deadness by a simple choice. We can convince them that if we speak their language and minister to their felt needs of a romantic and psychological love, then they will follow Jesus. But friends, this is perverse. And it fills the church not with believers, but unconverted souls who are immune to the true gospel. One can think of the Jesus people movement of the 70s, for example where rather than defining love through the true gospel, the church largely embraced the false view of love, proceeding from the contemporary music of the time and the hippie and anti-war movements. That's why love in most of the church today that is full of folks that came out of the 70s is that love is niceness. Make love, not war. It's anti-conflict, which if you look at scripture, is not the love that Christ calls us to. While the Lord absolutely did use the Jesus people movement of the 70s, and if you came out of it, I praise God for it, he did so in spite of the subversive redefinition, and I would argue perversion of love that crept into the mainstream church and is still sitting, infiltrating the church today. All of this confusion and chaos, dear friends, should act as the world's collective cry to the true church to explain the truth of God's love and the love that he expresses to his people. In so doing, the church will be describing the gospel of Jesus Christ 
expressed in his death, his resurrection, and his enthronement. For that is the definition of love and nothing else. But because this is the case, that properly defining the gospel will require properly defining the love of God, is it any wonder that Satan has worked overtime to pervert and twist and contort and in fact greatly diminish the meaning of the word love? If I were Satan, that's what I'd go after. Well, no greater remedy to this misunderstanding of love exists than that of the entire biblical narrative of God's redemptive plan for sinful and rebellious mankind. For it is true that the good news, the gospel of the Bible, is the working out of the steadfast love of God. And that, the steadfast love of God, my friends, is the connective theme between the two psalms which we will unpack this morning. They go into great detail to discuss what the Hebrew in the Old Testament would, called, would call the chesed, or the steadfast love of God. My hope this morning is that as we look at the truth that these two psalms describe, that we will not be conformed to this world, but that we would be transformed by the renewal of our mind as we properly understand the love of God. Now, before we get too much farther, let me give you just the beginnings of the definition of this word and help you understand why I am using, even in the title here, the Hebrew word. I'm going to be using it a lot today. Why would I continue to use it? Well, using the Hebrew word that we don't hear often, it will do a trick in our minds. It will get us to stop grabbing on to that false definition of love that so many of us have, and it will get us to reframe into what the truth of love is. That's why I will use the, the word chesed throughout the uh, the, the sermon today. It's not just to impress you with my terrible Hebrew. It's to get your minds to reorient. And then what we're going to do is we'll unpack the definition more as we go through the Psalms. Well, as I noted, in English, many words have meanings. So when we say love, we often have to distinguish in the moment between love of food versus love of a spouse or children and so on. Unfortunately, slowly but surely, what has happened is that all various meanings implied by love have morphed into one of a positive feeling or intention towards someone. And ultimately, someone or something for whom I have, to use the therapeutic psychological phrase, unconditional positive regard. That's what love means in our culture. But the Hebrew language is different. It has many words for love. For example, the most common word for it is ahav which means to have an affection for someone. It's somewhat similar to this English idea that we have. But the chesed of God, that steadfast love, deserves its own category. In most translations, it is rendered in the English as loving kindness or steadfast love. But it is more than just a love that is kind or a love that lasts. In fact, there is no English word nor a New Testament Greek word that completely parallels its meaning. The word hesed, like our God, is singular and remarkable, one of a kind. And so I want to give you a quick overview of the biblical theology surrounding this one word so you can understand what is meant when God talks about his love, his hesed. The root word in the Hebrew, spelled out, looks like this. It means God's steadfast love. If you're into Hebrew, it's chet samek dalet, right? Those are the three letters there, chesed, with the vowel markers underneath. And it's pronounced and written in English as both hesed with an H, or chesed is the more appropriate way to say it. Just so we're all clear, everybody say it with me, and use that little thing at the back of your throat to make the first sound, okay? <laughs> say it with me, chesed. Say it again, chesed, okay? That's how it's pronounced. Now, from a pure definition standpoint, this word chesed in the Hebrew can be translated in, into English as love, goodness, kindness, faithfulness, mercy, devotion, and favor. That's its semantic range. But even these words are lacking in the English, and so we've tried to use hybrids, blended words, such as loyal love, steadfast love, faithful love, loving kindness. Chesed describes a sense of love and loyalty that inspires merciful and compassionate behavior towards another person, usually a person that is the more vulnerable or weak party. Hesed is not romantic or based on lust or infatuation or, friends, even human emotion. And on the flip side, it is not just dutiful love. Well, it's covenantal. I got to stick it out. That's not what it is either. 
It flows solely from and is motivated out of the giver of hesed rather than being motivated as a response to the receiver and whether or not they have given you or reciprocated love. It is a faithful, covenantal, trustworthy, loyal, and reliable love. It is a love that requires divine illumination to fully understand and divine intervention to fully be able to carry it forward. In other words, without God, there is no chesed. It makes sense then that this love is sourced in God and God alone, for it is core to his nature and his character. This is not a love you will find in any other supposed false deity. When Moses asked to know Yahweh, the God, excuse me, the God of the Hebrews, and see him, he revealed the afterglow of his glory and declared, this is Exodus 34, 6 through 7, the Lord passed by him and proclaims, Yahweh, Yahweh, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in, what are those words there? Chesed, steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping what? Chesed, steadfast love for thousands, right? It's, it's referred to twice, and in Hebrew, that is meant to say, this is a big deal. Pay attention here. Forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. You see why I push against the idea that love is just niceness? Because that is love. And it has both justice and the flip side of steadfast love. In fact, they're one and the same. I wouldn't even call them the flip side of the coin. Now notice the English phrase here is steadfast love. The Hebrew word obviously behind it is hesed. God is hesed. Or in other words, in the words of John the Apostle, God is love. Love is based in God's character and cannot be, it cannot be, it cannot be other than what God declares and what falls into his good order. That is why it is false. It is a lie from the pit of hell that love is love. Do not fall for it. It is fitting then that this value of hesed was to characterize his people and their actions towards one another. It was the basis of his commands to his Old Testament people. And it is the background context of his commands to his New Testament church, as we will see in a bit. And we'll use the book of Romans to do so. It occurs 250 times in the Old Testament. So it's important. It was the mercy of God towards his people. And so he expected them to show the same to one another in order to bear his image to the pagan nations. Let me show you just a quick example of what I mean, that it was the basis of what his people were to be. Let me show you a well-known text that captures the overarching point of his law. You're probably familiar with it. Micah 6, 8. He has told you, O man, what is good? And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? Yes, kindness is a piece of love, but the word there in the Hebrew is chesed. See how the English can't quite get it across? It's not just being kind, it is to love, to embrace, to live out chesed, and to walk humbly with your God. In the words of one author, chesed intervenes on behalf of loved ones and comes to their rescue even in spite of themselves. It is the love, for example, in the pledge of Ruth to her mother-in-law, Naomi, in Ruth 1.16. The entire book of Ruth is centered on this idea of chesed. Boaz says to Ruth later in the book, you have shown me chesed. Well, she says to Naomi, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you, for where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God my God. Friends, if that doesn't characterize what should be Christian love, I don't know what does but I have a question for you. Is that the kind of love that characterizes the Christian church? Absolutely not. Because we have perverted it and twisted it to be something that can be easily broken and dismissed. This is the steadfast love of God. And ultimately, as we will see, it is a love that is displayed most perfectly, most evidentially, and most powerfully in the chesed of the sacrificial death and victorious resurrection of Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, it is my firm conviction, if you haven't already figured it out, 
that so much of the brokenness, the conflict, the drama, and the harm that occurs in the church today is due to the fact that so many are searching and striving in their Christian walk, striving in the Bible and in the church for a false secular view of love. And it is the ultimate diversion of Satan. If he has you pay attention to the false view of love, you will never understand the true view of love. If he can get us to spend all our waking hours pining after a love that is not of God, but of the world, he will keep us from discovering and honoring and honing within the church the true chesed. The true steadfast love of God that the Holy Spirit desires to place as the sign and seal of God upon his people. Friends, this is why I think people who've been in the church for many years end up leaving. Because what they were actually pursuing was not the chesed of God, but a worldly love. And guess what? They couldn't find it in the Bible. They couldn't find it in God's people. And so they left, never having actually been truly converted. And so I pray that today's ministry of the word will cause us to lay down any notion of love that is not biblical in its origin and instead pick up the truth of the love of God that he has displayed in the gospel. Now, I know that's the longest intro I've done in a while. So we've already read and heard Psalm 36, but let's now begin by reading together Psalm 33. And we're going to see this theme of the steadfast love of God between these two psalms. And we'll read Psalm 33 together out loud in communal praise of God and to prepare our hearts to understand this truth that I've introduced here. Let's go ahead and read beginning in verse 1 of Psalm 33. Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make melody to him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. For the word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, and the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation, and by its great might it cannot rescue. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. This is the word of the Lord. We first notice this morning a call to praise God in the first three verses. A call to praise God. Psalm 32, directly prior, was the psalm we looked at last week that so perfectly captures the good news of the gospel that Christ is our hiding place. Blessed is the man whose sin is forgiven, David declares. And the end of the psalm, Psalm 32 there, in verses 10 through 11, speak to this. Notice what it says there. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. What's that word for steadfast love in the Hebrew? Chesed. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. And so he says this to them. And as a result of this truth, he says, the, the steadfast love of the Lord, the chesed of the Lord surrounds you, so shout for joy. What is the response? Well, David says, shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. 
Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord, he says, to play skillfully on instruments. Because there is no heading above the first verse as there are in other psalms, some commentators believe that 32 and 33 were actually written as one psalm, but parsed for inclusion in the songbook of the Psalter. Regardless, Psalm 33 answers the command to praise. And how true is this, that once a person understands the joy of the forgiveness that they have been granted by confessing their sins, there is nothing else they want to do but give thanks and praise to God for his goodness. Friends, I wonder sometimes if we understand what we have been given in the grace of the Lord. Now, I must say, I am very proud of this church. I'm thankful for this church. I'm thankful for each of you this morning. Uh, It is Labor Day. Is that the right one? Yeah, Labor Day, one of those holidays. And so it's a smaller crowd. But man, you guys this morning, you're, you're crying out. You're loving the Lord. You're rejoicing. And so please do not take this as a statement of anything that I've heard or seen today in you. But sometimes I wonder, even for myself, if we truly understand what we've been given. Because if people were to see us in the midst of praise, what would they see? You see, if our sports teams win, we cheer, even if it's every week. If we won the lottery, we would erupt, would we not? When we find out that someone we love is having a baby, we get excited and we show it. When we receive anything, In life that is good news, we rejoice in a way that is animated and obvious. It doesn't mean we're Pentecostal. It means we're human. I wonder what would happen if before we arrived to worship and sing in congregational response to the Lord, I wonder what would happen if we stopped in our cars before we ever entered the building to purpose and remember why we are rejoicing. Friends, we were dead in our sin and rebellion against God. Dead. Without him, we would each rightly deserve an eternity of punishment. And why is it eternal? Because a hardened heart in this life does not grow soft when exposed to the fires of God's wrath in eternity. That's why the Catholic idea of purgatory is so bizarre to me. Dead is dead, now and into eternity. The heart just grows more hardened against the God that is showing his wrath. And that is why perdition, that is why hell is eternal, because the transgression of one moment is paid back in the next, and then the next, and then the next, because the heart just gets harder against the God who created it. The transgression and rebellion against God just keeps going. And so not only have you been saved from hell, but your heart has been changed, gripped by God, to be soft to the gospel and the goodness of God. Your eyes have been opened, and you have been enlivened. Without his providential action of enlivening our souls and pouring out his Holy Spirit to us as an act of hesed, we would still be blind, ignorant in our depravity, dead and tormented, all by our own choice and fleshly selfishness. He saved us from all this. Does he, res- does he deserve our praise and our rejoicing? Not only did he save us, he then placed in us and imputed to us his righteousness. He called us upright, and he placed a new song of praise in our hearts. Brothers and sisters, do we grasp what God has done for us? I think most days I do not. Most days I do not. Now, brothers and sisters, I don't want to turn you into a rockin' and rollin' church just for the sake of charisma or because loud singing and praise is the absolute sign of a spirit-filled church. That is just bad theology, and it would be done under false pretenses and human effort. So guilting you is not my goal here. But when we sing, when we praise the Lord, I want you to pause and truly recall what God has done for you. And if you or I then find ourselves standing in the same half-dazed manner as if we were waiting in line at the grocery store, ask God to give you insight into what he has done for you so that you can truly respond with shouts of joy and songs of thanksgiving and a raising of hands in a sign of need. I know that we are here in this temporary life with all its baggage and stresses and pain that often weighs us down in the monotony of life and the repetitive nature of church gatherings, but I pray that God would remind us that what we have here in the earthly church gathering is a mirror and reflection somewhat clouded, but a reflection still of the heavenly congregation before the throne of God pictured in Revelation who sing a new song to their king. Holy, holy, holy are you, Lord. They sing a new song 
because their hearts had been changed. And we reflect that gathering as we follow the commands of David here in Psalm 33, 1 through 3, in our earthly gathering. Shout for the joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord. And that's what David focuses on next is this idea of why we do this and why the church should be founded in this kind of praise. And it's because he next talks about the abounding chesed of God. The abounding chesed of God. Let's now read verses 4 through 5. For the word of the Lord is upright and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. David declares that the Lord is worthy of praise. Amen? Amen. And he uses three avenues to do so. All of which can be summed up in the phrase, the Lord's word and works. He goes through the Lord's word and works here. For his word, God's word, is what brings about his works. And the first avenue that David uses to declare God's worthiness of praise is his character, as shown in his word and works. His word is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. This means that his word will always be true to his good character and will not twist his original purposes or bow to human desire. And his work will follow in a fidelity and security that is true to that same good character. The action that his character then plays out is in works of righteousness and justice. Tzedakah v'amishpat in the Hebrew. Righteousness and justice. You will see these two everywhere in Scripture. Other, other places in Psalms, it says that his throne is founded upon his tzedakah v'amishpat, his righteousness and justice. And this is what characterizes those who have his heart, who follow his commands and desire his glory. And the ultimate height of righteousness and justice is found in God's chesed. For remember, this steadfast love is one that intervenes on behalf of loved ones and comes to their rescue and shows them mercy. He first performed this in creation, for creation shows this word and works play out as an overflow of his character. And that overflow is abounding, as it says. The earth is full of his chesed is abounding hesed. Look then at verses 6 through 9. It says, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. The earth and the heavens were brought to reality by the command of Yahweh. He alone is the reason for the creation, and he alone keeps it ordered so that chaos does not reign and overtake it. And as the creation, our only logical response is to honor him for this. This is what it is to stand in awe, that a being outside of creation could fashion such an amazing gift as all of this and all of you. And so David invites all of that creation to fear the Lord, not in horror or terror, but in respect and adoration as our creator, knowing that his power is beyond our comprehension. And yet he harnesses that power in hesed for us. Men far more intelligent than me, linguists who understand Hebrew far better than my tiny little view, they are able to connect hesed and this word behind fear of the Lord. A fear of the Lord is to grasp his hesed and to be in awe of it. That's what it is to fear the Lord. David uses God's character, God's creation. And lastly, here, God's counsel to show that he is worthy of praise. Look at verses 10 through 12. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. In other words, the plans and the actions. He frustrates those plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. Notice with me the contrast between the plural nations and peoples and the singular nation and people. God is worthy of praise because he frustrated and held back the rebellious, idolatrous nations bent on denying their creator. If he had not acted, mankind would be lost to its hardened hearts and blind depravity for all eternity, and no one would be saved. And so we praise God for the fact that he brought the council, the plans of the nations, to nothing. Otherwise, we would be dead for eternity in our sins and trespasses. 
But instead, what the Lord did is he acted in chesed by having mercy on whom he would have mercy, by choosing a nation, a people for himself. And here in the contemporary reading of this uh, psalm, the nation, the people whom he chose for himself and elected to be his own was that of Israel. That would have been what David would have been writing here and, and intending. An unknown and weak nation of slaves born from humble beginnings. God saved them not because of their value or worthiness and not because they would be obedient, not because they would one day choose him as bad theology teaches, but he chose them out of his pure grace and out of his pure steadfast love, his pure hesed. And in choosing Israel, he brought them into a special relationship where he would be their God and they would be his inheritance or heritage. Friends, all of this language collectively from Psalm 32 and 33 points us forward to the ultimate fulfillment of God's hesed as shown in Jesus Christ. For 32.1 declares, blessed is the man whose transgression is forgiven. 33.12 declares, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. How were these two things accomplished? How was sin forgiven and a nation of people elected and called? Well, through the singular redemptive work of Jesus Christ and the sovereign act of the Father. Paul speaks about this as we view this same language through the lens of the cross in Romans 9, as he handles the sticky topic of why not all Israelites believe in Christ and are thus saved. He says this in Romans 9, It is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descendants from Israel, in other words, ethnic Israelites, belong to the true Israel. That's what he means there. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. Again, biologically. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise. In other words, of faith. They are counted as offspring. Just as God chose Israel from among the, among the pagan Gentile nations to make them his own and place his hesed upon them, God chose from the beginning of time individuals from every tribe, tongue, and nation upon whom he would show his hesed to draw them and make them his own. And what were his conditions for choosing whom he would choose? What were his conditions for those whom would receive his hesed? Well, Paul answers a little bit later in Romans 9. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, here's the conditions. It depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. The Lord sits enthroned as the just and perfect judge, whose word is upright, whose works are done in faithfulness, who loves righteousness and justice. And he has poured out his steadfast love on all the earth. What does he see here in Psalm 33? He sees the hopeless lack of chesed in man. And this is why we need his chesed. This is why we need his mercy and his compassion and the salvation that comes through his son, Jesus Christ, dying in our place. Because what he sees without it, without his act, without his intervention, is a hopeless lack of hesed in man. Rather than the awe and holy fear that should characterize the response of the inhabitants of the world in verse 8, he sees something far different from the inhabitants of the world in verses 16 and 17. Look at 16 and 17. Now let's start in verse 13. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man from where he sits enthroned. He looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. What does he see? This statement. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation, and by its great might, it cannot rescue. What God sees as he looks at the hearts of man and their deeds is not a character that reflects their maker of works that are done in righteousness, justice, and steadfast love. 
No, what he sees is the hardened heart of a people that believes salvation comes in their own strength and in their own might. David uses the metaphor of military power to encapsulate all of mankind's rebellion towards their true king and lord. Rather than find their refuge in Yahweh as their king, the peoples of the world lift up their human kings to lead them and to save them. Friends, it happens every four years. We are like goldfish. This guy will save us. He failed. Next guy will save us. He failed. Let's get a woman. They fail. That's literally what's happening in our society right now. We, have, we are political goldfish because we think our human kings will save us. And rather than find salvation in the goodness of the creator that benevolently made them, humanity finds their salvation in their measly human armies and weapons. Rather than the Lord serve as their strength, the warrior thinks he will be delivered by his own strength and military might. And friends, this picture is even in the midst of the church. How many Christians believe that they will draw God's love by trying harder, being better, if they're just more loving in the secular sense? then God will respond by loving them. But none of these can be mankind's salvation. None of these schemes can rescue us and serve as our refuge and hiding place. Rescue is found in the chesed of God alone. The steadfast love that intervenes on behalf of the loved one and comes to their rescue to show them mercy. But this is the farthest thing from the heart of man that shows a complete lack of chesed. For they know, we know, in our sinful state, so little about God and his true character. And so humanity believes salvation comes by our own strength and control. David carries this picture further in Psalm 36. Will you turn there with me? Psalm 36, verses 1 through 4. We'll come back to 33. But let's look at verses 1 through 4. As he declares a very different word and work of sinful mankind that stands in startling contrast to the word and works of God centered in Hesed. Let's read verses 1 through 4. Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes, for he flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. The words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. He has ceased to act wisely and do good. He plots trouble while on his bed. He sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not reject evil. The picture of wicked mankind that David paints here is a creature that, if left to their own devices, is irredeemable because rebellion has taken deep root in their inner life. Irredeemable, that is, in their own strength. Rather than having a fear of God that leads to salvation and rejoicing, there is an arrogance and a haughtiness that acts as though they will never have to stand before God's righteous judgment. Rather than image bearers of God's character made up of righteousness and justice and steadfast love, that show his word and works, this man's word and is trouble and deceit. And his actions are evil so much so that he tires of the evil that he has done, and so he plots more. Left to ourselves, mankind is the antithesis of God, a complete lack of the steadfast love of God. And again, without God's rescue, mankind cannot escape this horror of self-imposed bondage to rebellion against God. Continual pursuit of sin and an embrace of one's own hard heart will slowly but surely lead to the depraved mind in which the Apostle Paul says in Romans 1 that God will give us over to it. And if he does not intervene, and we do not answer his call. This lack of hesed in humanity is why mankind as a whole must be judged and suffer the just wrath of God. And if all humanity deserved this end, God would be righteous. And yet to show his hesed, to show his mercy, he stepped into time and space to save in mercy and grace. Friends, we should be in abject terror if the progression outlined here in these four verses by David comes anywhere near the state of our own individual reality. Flattery of self that your sin will not be found out. Ceasing to do the good you know you should do plotting to engage in further evil, and committing or setting oneself to sin. God, save us from ourselves. And friends, if you think, well, that's not me, I would ask you to look at your relationships. Yeah, you might be thinking of the big rocks of adultery and pornography and stealing and murder. But friends, this is what happens in marriages or with our children or with a brother or sister in Christ in the church. I'm not the one that's done wrong. They have. Slowly, the heart gets hardened. 
plotting how to break the relationship, how to avoid the relationship, how to not reconcile. Friends, this is the heart of man if the hesed of God does not work. Now again, the Apostle Paul captured this so well in his letter to the Romans, for he saw this same tendency of sin in himself. Look at Romans 7, 21 through 25. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am. Wicked man that I am, he's saying. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul knew that without the love of God, without the chesed of God, he would be lost to eternal wrath. And so what he says in the next chapter of Romans as he spells out God's love declares clearly that the apostle Paul understood this chesed that we have been discussing so far today that's captured in these two psalms. Would you turn there with me? Would you go to Romans? Romans 8 in your Bible? Go to Romans 8. We're going to start in verse 29. This is the same reading that Mac read for us earlier. A portion of it, at least. Take a look at 8.29. For those whom God, he, foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Even ourselves, friends. Even our sinful selves, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Yes, it is a Greek word that is not hesed here, but friends, that's what he's talking about. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Or in other words, even your own sinful heart? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now friends, there are two ways to read this. One is based with the focus on me, on self. Oh, look at how much I am lovable. Look at how much love God has given to me. This is based in romance and feeling and all the secular realm we talked about. The second way is to read this as it's intended, that it's about God. And when we get this, that the love of God that emanates from him does not change, is not minimized, does not go away, we stop worrying about if we're lovable enough. We stop worrying about if we're doing the right things. We just fall down in a life of worship and we are secure in the knowledge that he will keep us safe in salvation. In the mind of Paul, his only hope, his only salvation was in the love of God, not his own lovability. But it was not a, and it was not a romantic, feelings-based, positive affirmation-only type of love. Yes, these might be parts of the love that ends up emanating in the church, but this was not the core. 
God's steadfast covenantal love that he lavishes upon those he saves, it's not because they are worthy of it, but decidedly because they are not. The statement we read earlier that was quoted from Exodus was God saying, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion upon whom I will have compassion. Friends, this isn't one of a control-hungry, power-hungry God, nor is it one of resigned frustration. I guess I'll have mercy on some. No, it is one of hopeful grace and promised rescue to those that are his own. It is a love that is contra-conditional in its choice of who it is lavished upon because the recipient does not, in fact, deserve it. And because it is based on him and him alone, his character and not our own, his works and his word, not our own, we have nothing to fear and all thanks to give. For it is a love that is secure. It is a salvation that can never be shaken because it flows not from me or you, but from the fact that God is love. Paul knew this chesed, for he was well acquainted with the true love of God found in the Old Testament. And this was the love he was speaking of. Brothers and sisters, that is the love I want you to know and understand. If you're sad today because I have kind of smashed your idea of Jesus' love and made it less exciting, well, friends, you don't understand the chesed of God. This is like being sad that you lost a marshmallow in order to get a steak. <laughs> it's a childish view of love. And you need to lay that at the foot of the cross and say, Lord, help me to understand the truth of your love. I so desire that you would be able to and I would be able to cast away the shallow counterfeits you've been handed by society, by pop culture, by your own deceptive emotions, and even by misguided pastors and churches. Because once you do that and you allow the truth of God's steadfast love to take root, you will be at peace. You will be secure in your knowledge of his love for you. And this knowledge will change you more and more into a reflection of him. Not only that, it will change your relationships and your families and this church. It will show itself as wells of loving charity bubbling up in mercy for one another. Not because it is deserved, but because we have been remade, reborn in the likeness of the one who lavished his chesed upon us. For the love that flows out of a person that understands God's chesed is chesed itself. We love because he first loved us. We live out God's steadfast love because he showed us his own. And this is where we will finally find hope in God's immeasurable chesed. And that's what we're looking at last here, finding hope in God's immeasurable chesed. Go back with me to Psalm 33 quickly, if you would. Psalm 33. And here you will see that the Lord continues looking on from his throne, but this time, beginning in verse 18, his eye finds something in contrast to what he saw in verses 13 through 17. Verse 18 of Psalm 33, Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love, his hesed, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. Let your hesed, your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. Notice that we are given help in defining what is meant by fearing the Lord. David uses parallelism to show us. It is those who hope in the Lord's steadfast love, his hesed. And it is expressed here as delivering their souls from death and keeping them alive with provision. David then speaks on behalf of the people and backs up everything we have been discussing. It is the Lord who pours out his hesed. It cannot be earned. For no human is capable of earning it but it is poured out of God's own nature. And so our only hope is to wait for it, to wait for his help and to cry out for his steadfast love to be upon his people. And so friends, this should be our moment by moment cry. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us even as we hope in you. A person might say, well, if the Lord chooses 
who he pours it out on. What if I want it? Well, friends, that means you're one of the ones he's chosen to pour it out on. He wants to pour it out upon you because he is a God who is overflowing with his hesed and he wants you to know it and walk in it and be saved by it. We wait for it not because he withholds it, but because he knows that it is so easy for us to try to manipulate this topic of love for our own control or power. And so our hearts must receive it in complete surrender and abasement before him. We must recognize we are the beggar and he is the willing sovereign. Our hope is not in our own strength nor in the strategies and plans of men, no technological advancement or environmental fix or sociopolitical peace will be proven true as the hope of mankind. Our only hope is in the Lord's steadfast love. And perhaps you're here today and you are realizing that your hope has been in these or any other earthly thing or in a false view of love. And perhaps you have placed your hope in the right job or the right relationship or the right home or the right vacation or the right spouse or boyfriend or girlfriend. Perhaps it's in finding a love that finally tells you that you are special and worthy of someone's undivided and particular attention. That is the love that so many evangelical crusades, so many sermons, and so many contemporary Christian songs try to sell. Listen for it and you'll find it as it attempts to manipulate unconverted hardened hearts to follow a false Jesus who exists to lift them up in worship, not himself. But friends, placing your hope in any of these things will only fail you and leave you more empty than before. For true hope, a hope that lasts and is fulfilled, is only found in surrendering your life to Christ and his true steadfast love as he benevolently reigns as king in your life. It is proclaiming from a face prostrate in worship. I am not worthy, and yet you love me still and have chosen me as your own in spite of my rebellion. This kind of love is the only thing that will last when all else fades away, friends. And God promised it will last to his people. He said this in Isaiah 54, For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my chesed, my steadfast love, shall not depart from you. And my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. Because it proceeds from God and is dependent upon him and not upon our worthiness or value, it is a love that lasts and a love that is immeasurable. In other words, it is a love that has no bounds and no limits. It is eternal. And this is what David recognizes and understands in Psalm 36. And let's read next Psalm 36, 5 through 9. And all of us who are a little bit older, let's try to keep the third day song out of our head. Or maybe you want it in your head. I'm not sure. I have a hard time reading this without saying their lyrics. Like the mighty mountains. Sorry, Ben. Okay, here we go. Verse 5. Here we go. If it works for you, go ahead and sing third day while you're sitting there. Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness to the clouds your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep. Man and beast, you save, O Lord. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. Oh, praise God. Praise God. Notice that there is a boundlessness to the Hesed of God. These poetic words, they use poetry and imagery so that there's a sound like there's boundaries, but they're boundaries that for the contemporary reader of the psalm were beyond reach. In other words, you cannot fathom the limits of God's patient, enduring love because there is no limit to it. In verses 8 and 9, God's hesed is described as an unending abundance of provision from which we will never get our fill. It is a fountain of life that never runs dry and yet always satisfies. It is a light that illuminates all truth. 
And so David cries out, just like Psalm 33, for God to give that chesed to him. Like the woman at the well, give me this water of which you speak. Friends, when you understand the chesed of God, the rest of this idea of love is pathetic. You want nothing to do with it. Give me this love that you speak of in your word. David sees that he is needy. We are needy. But there's one difference. Notice that he says, continue. Verse 10. Oh, continue your steadfast love to those who know you and your righteousness to the upright of heart. Let not the foot of arrogance come upon me, nor the hand of the wicked drive me away. There the evildoers lie fallen. They are thrust down, unable to rise. He says, continue. And this is not David saying that God's desire is to take it away at the first bump in the road like a human love. For that would be opposed to chesed and undercut its definition. No, these last three verses are a declaration of the lasting state of those upon whom God has shed his chesed and those who are allowed to continue in their chosen and voluntary arrogance against God, unable to rise. And so David asks, full well knowing, that God will continue pouring out his chesed upon those that are his. Friend, are you his. Are you awash in the chesed of God? If you go, well, I'm not really feeling it this morning, I would ask you to go back and re-listen to the last hour. It's not about feeling. It's about whether the Lord has captured your heart and said, you are mine, you are not your own anymore, because I love you, and I want to break you of your sin and make you new to walk in the light of my word. Are you his? If not, can you feel him calling and softening your heart so that he might show you his grace and mercy? Don't let that pass by. Accept his gift and then come talk with one of us after the service about what it is to follow him. For today is the day of your salvation. Brothers and sisters, I pray that this participation in the worship of God and his character that David has led us through in Psalms 33 and 36 will transform our view of love this morning. I pray that it will affect how we now live. Dear church, hold tight to this definition of love. Hold tight to it so that you might daily pray that God would allow you his power to reflect it to those around you. Friends, I know that Just in my study of this, I am forever changed. And I am recognizing how little I understand this word, love. And so we need to hold tight to it as a church. We need to hold tight to this definition that it is a love that's not dependent upon the subject's worthiness, but it's dependent upon the God who has saved us and his goodness that has flown now overflown now to us and flown through us. A love that comes to the rescue of the party that is broken and in need. A love that is covenantal and steadfast. A love that is patient and kind, full of joy and the fruit of the Spirit. A love that leads towards holiness and fights against sin. A love that never leaves, never forsakes, is always willing to reconcile. A love that is the hesed of God. Let this be what plays out in our friendships, our fellowship, our marriages, our relationships with our children. Let this be what characterizes this church family and all the churches in this area. And when you find yourself retracting your love and distancing yourself or living in a love that is emotional or volatile or lust-filled or sporadic, when you find your definition of love based, about how, based upon how you feel and whether or not you feel loved, pray that God would remind you and wash you in his word, his word that speaks the truth of chesed so that your love can be genuine and not hypocritical. Friends, to do so, it has to come from God. You can't just decide to do it on your own. You have to enter into prayer, enter into his word and say, Lord, change my hardened heart. Brothers and sisters, I want to ask you, which relationships need an overhaul in your life? 
so that they are built on the foundation of God's hesed and not the sinking sand of a faulty view of love that you have previously held. I want to ask you to think through that today and then take these relationships to the Lord in prayer. Repent to him. Ask him for his help and then go and repent to them and then let hesed flourish. That's my prayer for this church. Amen? As we now go into a time of worship centered around the symbolic remembrance of God's greatest act of hesed in the death and resurrection of Christ, let's begin by answering David's call to praise. Would you turn with me to Psalm 136? I know I went long, but friends, we got to do this. Turn to Psalm 136. And we're just going to do the first three verses of Psalm 136. And then we're going to do the last four verses, starting in verse 23. And the way we're going to do it is I'm going to say to you the first portion and your response, your responsorial will be, for his steadfast love endures forever. And when you say it, what am I going to say? I want you to mean it. Okay? Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. Give thanks to the God of gods. Give thanks to the Lord of lords. Verse 23. It is he who remembered us in our low estate and rescued us from our foes. He who gives food to all flesh. Give thanks to the God of heaven. Let's pray. Worship team, you can come on up. Father God, we thank you so much for your hesed. And we say that knowing that we don't fully understand it and can't grasp it. And yet you have given us a crumb of truth this morning, and it is so filling and abundant in its truth, and so we praise you and thank you. Help our hearts this morning as we step into communion, understand what the truth of your love is so that we might cast aside the counterfeits we've held on to in this life. And Lord, if we have conviction today that we have been acting in not the godly form of love, but the secular form of love to anyone around us. I pray that you would call us to you in repentance so that we might lay it at your feet and that we might beg of your help to help us in our need to reflect your chesed more clearly. Help us to do that as we go to the table. And Lord, all of this is based on the truth and the beauty and the historical act of your son dying in our place for our sins, resurrecting to prove that hesed is more powerful than the grave, more powerful than our sin. And so, Lord, we pray that you would remind us of that as we now sing praises to you as you deserve for your character, your creation, for your counsel, and as we sing praises to you for the redemption that you have purchased for us by the love that you showed through your son. We thank you and praise you, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Let's now sing together in praise. <laughs>